0: Welcome to podcast number 152 of My Favorite Detective Stories. Today's date is March 15th, 2022, and I'm your host, John A. Hoda. Our guest this week is Jeffrey James Higgins. Jeffrey is a former reporter and retired supervisory DEA special agent who writes crime thrillers, creative nonfiction, short stories, and essays. He has wrestled in IED away from a suicide bomber, fought the Taliban in combat, and chased terrorists across five continents. He received both the Attorney General's Award for Exceptional Heroism and the DEA Award of Valor. He lives with his wife in Alexandria, Virginia. His most recent novel, Unseen, Evil Lurks Among Us, follows the story of a rookie homicide detective, Malachi Wolf, as he investigates a string of murders in Washington, D.C., and uncovers both a vigilante killer and a terrorist conspiracy, making himself a target. This is a fun interview, and I'm sure you're going to enjoy it. Welcome to my favorite detective stories. I'm your host, John A. Hoda. Come sit by my campfire as we listen to crime fiction writers talking about their flawed fictional detectives. I will alternate weekly between award-winning and best-selling authors with debut authors who have overcome all the obstacles to get their first novel out into the world. This episode is brought to you by my own FBI agent, Marsha O'Shea six book series and my upcoming Gwendolyn strong, small town, cozy mystery series to learn more go to www.johnhoda.com, that's J-O-H-N-H-O-D-A.com, and join my email list. Liberty City Nights, my Marsha O'Shea prequel novella, is available to my subscribers there for free.
1: Hi Jeffrey, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, John. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Well, thank you so much for coming on. And how's the weather down there in uh, Alexandria, Virginia today?
1: Getting cold. We're starting to have a little bit of that Christmassy weather, which I'm excited about. I'm a New England guy, so I, I love the cold. Mm.
0: Well, uh, as we record this in uh, wintry New England today, uh, it's uh, December 23rd.
1: So where, what parts of uh, New England were you from? I grew up in Massachusetts, but you know New England's so small. So I, I vacationed and traveled all over New England for you know most of my earlier years. I lived in Boston for years. My undergraduate degree was at Boston University, and I, I grew up in the little town of Harvard, Massachusetts, which is about thirty miles west of Boston. My uh, my family is still up in Massachusetts, so I get up there frequently.
0: Oh, that's nice. That's cool. The Commonwealth mutual friend of ours, uh, Larry Forletta suggested we get together and talk. Uh, he told me he had a, uh, fantastic career before your writing career. So, uh, if you don't mind, just kind of walk me from, uh, you know, after graduation and, and walk me through your careers and, uh, t- tell me how you got started writing and, uh, if I have any
1: questions, I'll
0: uh, I'll ask.
1: I think think after um, I, I, my my career started much differently than a lot of other crime writers and former police officers who get into writing. I, I always knew my whole life I wanted to be an author, and I I was singularly focused from the time I was a little kid and I was writing. I had a, my undergraduate degree was in journalism, and I became a reporter after college. And then I was between reporter jobs. And I was, I was actually – I would started writing a book about a private investigator because I was a huge Robert Parker fan, like like so many <laughs> crime writers. And uh, and I saw an, an ad for a, a private investigative intern position, and I, and I thought, wow, won't that be great for my writing? Because even even at writing at an early age, I, I, it occurred to me even then that I probably needed some real-life experience to write about some of these things. So I wasn't just doing a Hollywood version of, of what, what the criminal underworld was like. Yeah, and so I, I did that, and that ended. You know, I, suddenly I was exposed to all these police officers or people who wanted to get into law enforcement. You know, and and it was I find that the, like writers, like most writers that I know have this calling, like like me, that they always wanted to write. And police officers are the same way. You know, there's this protective instinct they have, and this this need to protect people who are weaker and protect society, and 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 it's really admirable they're they're getting quite a bum rap over the last few years but I, uh, I i was exposed to these people really for the first time and i got i got very interested in law enforcement and one thing led to another i became a uh, a deputy sheriff with the Hillsburg County Sheriff's office in Florida and in Florida, unlike New England, deputy sheriffs are, are really they're more like a state police. We we did, you know, full service law enforcement. So I was in patrol, I was on the auto theft task force, I, I was a detective, a narcotics detective in our organized crime bureau. I did, you know, undercover with our street crimes unit. So I, I had a really interesting career with them. And then after that, I went into DEA and I worked for over 20 years with DEA. I retired as a supervisory special agent. And just had a—I was really fortunate, you know. i just had so many interesting experiences. I, I got into my first shooting when I was in my field training program <laughs> oh, <geez. laughs> with the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office, you know. And, And just, you know, worked, worked in some high crime neighborhoods and, and, you know, just had that camaraderie with the the police officers I was working with. We got into probably a car chase every couple of weeks. You know, we got into knockdown drag out fights several times a month. You know, it was just, it was a kind of a high octane career choice. And it's especially for like a young man, it's, it's, it's a very addictive and the work we were doing, you know, is so good. When you're in law enforcement and you don't know what what's going to happen in a given day, and then you know your your computer terminal beeps and you go to a call, and all of a sudden you're in a life and death encounter. It's it's really uh it's really exciting, and um you know and of course what I did for DEA was much different after that.
0: That, that was an exciting you know discussion, and I I know from once you speak, uh, both uh, both of us have a, a law enforcement background. I was a uniformed police officer way way back in the day. I used to joke that I was a cop so long ago, I carried a six shooter. Uh, And I understand that, you know, the excitement of, of the thrill, the chase, I mean, it also attracts adrenaline junkies. You know, we know that that's the case, whether it's uh, being a first responder as a fireman or as a uh, ambulance on an ambulance crew or as a cop, you know, there's, there's that excitement that uh, attracts, you know, certain personalities. And I had one of those, you know, Uh, So I I know from whence you come. Now, uh, you said that the DEA experience was a little bit different. Um, Tell me about how you what your career was like.
1: When I was a a deputy sheriff, you know, it's uh, generally the cases were short term, especially in like patrol. Uh, You know, when I was a detective, we did longer term cases, but still everything was relatively short term. When when you're doing federal cases, these things go on for years and years and years and they go to court and they continue on for years so it's, you know, it's, it's a different pace and you're not out on the street every day, like fighting for your life, like you are in a police department. So it's, it's a slightly different, you know, uh, like, like culture than, than a police department, but the cases were tremendous. You know, I always likened it to like a, the federal agencies, like a giant uh, steamroller it takes forever to get started, but once we get going, we're going to crush you, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so I worked in New York for a couple of years and, and um, just doing great cases um, so, you know, transnational criminal groups. New York's uh, importation uh, city. I'm actually a libertarian, so I, I I always focused on the violence associated with drugs. I used the drug laws as ways to go after violent criminals. So I did like racketeering cases, you know, uh, uh, federal hostage taking and and homicide and things like that uh, to go after the people that were murdering, you know, innocent people in in uh, in New York. And then I was in New York on 9 11. I was I was actually one of the first people to get to the North Tower after it came down. Oh my! And I remember standing in the rubble there and, and vowing that I was going to use my investigative skills to go after terrorism. You know, it was, it, for it's been it's been a while now, right? It's been 20 years, and I, I think a lot of people forget, especially younger people, don't understand. It was, it was sort of the Pearl Harbor of, of our generation.
0: Absolutely.
1: And it and it changed everything. You know, after that I just I, I only wanted to go after terrorism. I mean, I'd always been focused on violence anyhow. So I, I pushed and pushed my agency. You know, got a lot of pushback too from people within the agency who are afraid of getting subsumed by the Department of Homeland Security, which was created after nine eleven. I worked on the Joint Terrorism Task Force uh for a period of time and was able to demonstrate that DEA's like drug enforcement tactics. Were extremely viable for counterterrorism because these terror cells are very similar to drug cells. You know, they're sort of these amorphous uh, uh, structures, organizational structures, and you know, each, each one's working with you know weapons traffickers and smugglers and things. So they're they're very similar. So we were able to do some good things with them, and I worked with the Department of Homeland Security at their Watch Center as a DEA liaison. And, and I was shocked by how many DEA cases were actually related to major uh, international terrorism cases that were going on by intelligence and law enforcement agencies. But people always thought of DEAs just as drug agencies. Of course, it's a single mission agency. But the people that, you know, these are bad people, right? <laughs> Whether you're talking about terrorist groups or, right. or, or narcotics trafficking or other forms of transnational crime, and there's a lot of overlap. And so I, I pushed to get involved. And then when DEA opened its... Uh, country office in Kabul, Afghanistan. I volunteered for it and was selected. So I, w- I was there in the early years, which was very much like the Wild West. And I spent years in Afghanistan, o- over a year with the Kabul country office, but really just pushing to show the, the connection between uh, terrorism and narcotics. And shockingly, like now it's shocking, right? If people hear this, but it was a very hard sell like the intelligence community was saying oh there's just anecdotal evidence the military was afraid of getting involved in this slippery slope where they'd have mission creep you know uh people within DEA didn't want to get involved with with terrorism because they they were they they were, af- were afraid of being pulled out of their single mission so i was i really was just like this advocate for years and every case we were doing or almost every case had a terrorism connection. I was in Kabul for four days when I, when I ended up tackling a suicide bomber when he was trying to detonate his bomb. So it was that, that first year in Afghanistan was, was pretty crazy.
0: Wow. That's for sure. But you know, it, it seems crazy now to think about that connection, but you're right. Absolutely right. I mean, it, and how many uh, terrorist organizations fund their operations by th- uh, the illegal sale of narcotics?
1: According to DA, it's about 37%. I think the number is probably actually higher, but that, that's from direct intelligence that they have. You know, there's that that classic narco-terrorism you think of with like Pablo Escobar and the drug groups that are using terrorism to further their drug interests. But then there's a new ideological-driven narco-terrorism where you have groups like the Taliban that are, are driven by an ideology, yet they use drugs as a way to support themselves. Sure.
0: I mean, it was the main cash crop of Afghanistan, uh, poppy. Yes?
1: Yeah, it still is. They're the most uh, acres under hectares there is what they use. They're the most hectares under poppy uh, cultivation anywhere in the world. It's Afghanistan's been responsible for about an 80 to 90 percent of the world's heroin for many years. And the, uh, now, of course, since this this disastrous withdrawal, the uh, Taliban is running this country. We're, we're it, we we've given them a narco state, you know. So we we now have the highest concentration of terror groups and the source of the world's heroin all in the same place. It's it's going to be a disaster, and I don't know how we're going to avoid having to go back in there at some point.
0: Wow, that's a that's a pretty picture.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, you know, it's it, and, and highly highly predictable. You know, like the what happened with our the way we withdrew was very predictable. I predicted it. And then the way, you know, then what's going to happen now? Like, you know, I I like to tell people in like the sixteenth, seventeenth, eighteenth centuries, the pirates had Nassau in the Bahamas, and now we've given the jihadis Kabul. You know, so this is this is a place where we have very little uh exposure to what's what's happening. You know, the people who are working with us feel betrayed, the government's gone, our sources won't trust us anymore. It's 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 really it's gonna be a black hole. And we certainly aren't aren't in the area where we're able to launch operations like we used to.
0: Well, uh, and to your, an earlier point about, uh, reluctance of organizations to uh, get a stain from dealing with certain things like the military didn't want to do this for this reason. Uh, Um, DEA didn't want to do it for this reason. Another, you know, uh, three-letter agency didn't want to do it for that agency reason. I think I hearken back to uh, J. Edgar Hoover's FBI, who did not want to acknowledge that uh, there was uh, the underworld, that there was uh, organized crime. And uh, finally, it took uh, the Appalachian meeting. Yeah, it was the Appalachian meeting. Where uh, it finally became obvious and that they had no other choice but to get involved. But even then, uh, Hoover was uh, grudgingly wanting to use uh, federal resources to deal with organized crime. You think about that now, like looking back and it's like, what? (laughs) Yeah, but same thing, I guess, is what you were saying.
1: Yeah. People forget, you know, it's that all these agencies are bureaucracies and often, you know, the tail wags a dog at some point where you have these massive bureaucracies. And what people often think of as conspiracies is generally just incompetence. And, and at the top of a lot of these agencies, you have politically motivated people, you know, so there's always an element of politics in them as well.
0: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I don't know too many ideologues that survive, uh, in a political quagmire of, uh, federal bureaucracy. But you said that uh, at some point you decided to leave the DEA. And uh, what was your next uh, landing uh, ground?
1: Well, I stayed until I retired. So <laughs> I retired in 2017. You know, I'd spent uh, five years with our tactical teams. And and then I'd worked with our international uh, narco-terrorism unit, g- chasing terrorists around the world. So, you know, I, I felt like i I'd, wanted to do. And real passion was always writing. And I'd gotten away from it for 25 years. It's, it seems bizarre. You know, it's, it's such an excuse when writers say, oh, I can't write because I'm busy. But I, I think part of it was that, I mean, when like, there were times when I was, you know, I was working 20 hour days for months and months on end. I was, you know, attached to military units with our tactical team. And, you know, we were running around the world doing these things. So obviously it was hard to write, but it's it's always just an excuse. But I think I think more than anything, I was very driven by what I wanted to do. And, you know, once I finished that, I was like, okay, now it's time to change gears and get back to what I always wanted to do. So I've been writing full time for uh, almost five years now.
0: Okay, And how's that come? How's that come along?
1: You know, I it's I I get people on LinkedIn all the time who contact me like former, you know, law enforcement officers. And they, they all have these great stories and they all want to write it and i i I'm always kind of walking that line between encouraging them because they are great stories and they could all be terrific and giving them the reality on the ground you know like like there 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 are a few businesses that are as difficult as writing you know it's it's there there's you know millions of books that come out every year it's it's a really it's a really uh competitive playing field. It's hard to get an agent, you know. There's, there's, you know, in in New York publishing, there's certain things they want to push and other things they don't, you know. And so sometimes when you're in when you're in law enforcement, a lot of those stories aren't as readily accepted. But you know, all that it takes is one book to break out, and things can do really well, you know. But so, so it's going it's going well. I mean, it's been very difficult. I've got I've got two uh, novels that are pu- traditionally published that are out. I've also published self published a novella. It was. I don't know if you're aware, but Amazon has this Vela, it's a serial, new serial platform. And I thought, well, this would be fun because, you know, Amazon's the beast. And I figured they're starting a new serial, uh, you know, a format and serials are so big around the world. It's like a multi-billion dollar industry. I figured, why, why not get in at the beginning of that? So I wrote a military thriller. I'm a thriller writer. So I wrote a military thriller for it. And then a lot of readers were asking if I could also publish it in an ebook. So I just self-published it.
0: Now, um, getting back to what you said earlier about law enforcement uh, people having great stories to tell I would tend to fall into that category so Jeff you know I was I was always a storyteller uh, from the time I was a cop way back in the day until recently and uh, I thought that it would be an easy transition to go from being a storyteller to writing and one of the first things I did was uh, receive some very humbling advice from my son who said, Dad, you're not a writer. <laughs> I said, okay. So I went out and bought a book, and I, uh, my, my podcast. If I don't say it at least once every five podcasts, I'm not doing my job. But I, uh, I bought a book called How to Write Fiction for Dummies. It was one of the Dummies series books, and I tell you, it was one of the best books ever I could have, have imagined. Te- starting to teach me about what it is to write a, a, a fiction book. And I can tell you, since I read that book back in 20, uh, 2010, 2011, that I revisit that book before I write every single one of my books so that I get into the mindset, the proper mindset that I have all the things that I have to keep in mind and, and what I need to be, where I need to do uh, regarding all the, the the various, you know, like, Thirty-nine different story elements. I try to keep them juggling in my head before I sit down and write. So uh, it wasn't, and it isn't easy. As as that's what I think you were trying to tell me, and that uh, that uh, somebody that might have been successful in another career is now going to feel like a kindergartner, and it's going it's not easy because you have your You know, you have your successes of your career, and now you have to grind as if you're just starting something brand spanking new. Does that make sense, what I just laid out to you? And would you be telling uh, any prospective uh, great storytellers what I just said?
1: Yeah, you're exactly right. You know, So what I generally tell people is if if they're like a former or, or you know, somebody who's getting ready to get from law enforcement, they have this story they want to tell. I, I ask them this question, do you want to write now? Is this something you want to do? Or do you just have this one story you want to get out? And if it's one of these things where they have one story, they don't plan on writing again, they're not passionate about writing, I encourage them to try to f- find a co-writer. You know, get 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 a professional writer on board with them because they, they do have a great story, but they they're you know for what it, it'll take them years to learn how to tell it properly. Now, if they if you know there are a lot of former police officers who also want to write now, which I also encourage, and I I tell them you have to you have to learn the business of writing and you have to learn the craft of writing. You know, and both of those take a lot of time. So I, I, I'm coming up on five years. I retired in, in uh, March of end of March in 2017, so I was coming up on five years. And I would spend hours every day learning you know studying the craft, like reading books, listening to podcasts, you know, just really working on that I was I'd make huge editing lists, I'd make lists of of things I'd have to remember to do, which hopefully I've internalized at this point and I don't have to refer to as much um but you know it, it, like learning the craft, I made every single amateur mistake you could make, and I still make mistakes all the time, right so it's it's a process but Working for hours every day, not just on my writing, but studying the craft and then studying the business to understand, you know, how to write a query letter and and what people expect, and you know how to how to find an agent and how to find a uh, a publisher. Like, there's a lot to it. How to promote once you actually do get published. You know, all of this you could do an hour podcast on. You know, each of these things very easily. But you know, you have to you have to you have to learn. Like when you're telling you have this great story, but you have to learn how to de- develop character. You know, you have to you have to learn how how to structure the the plot you know, in the right way. They're, they're sort of these, you know, the, the, Joseph Campbell kind of, uh, you know, structure that goes on and there, there's some great books.
0: No, you're right. No, I, I'm, I'm staring at my, uh, desk, which is next to my uh, podcast station. And, you know, from one end of the desk to the other is all books on writing. And these are things that, you know, 10 years ago would not have been on my desk. <laughs> you know, obviously, because 10 years ago I was, you know, still in my career, uh, as an investigator. So, uh, and I think that's the kind, I think that's excellent advice. What you just told me about, if you have a one-off or a standalone and you're not going to do anything else, definitely. I think a co-writer is a great idea because, um, they can take that story and massage it into something that is uh, a written, um true crime event or some you know a memoir or something of that like that, which has its they both have their own tropes, but you also talked about uh doing a lot of reading on your own and doing a lot of uh studying and as well as learning about the business but tell me what about and what about having uh your books edited and getting feedback from your editors? did you use beta readers did you use uh advanced copy readers uh, tell me about that
1: yeah all of the above you know so so when i write and when i first started i was probably going through 40 to 60 iterations of a book you know wow. I, I would just edit over and over and over because because i was so bad right like it takes it takes time to fix now the lad this lad just finished a, a rough draft of a new novel and i think it was like four or five uh times through so it was a lot better but once once i have that draft and i you know i use a uh, pro writing aid which is software that that's that generates reports so you can you can fix the uh you know, it's like, it's, it's like word, word, uh, you know, spell check and it gives you, it gives you cliches and echoes and all these different things. So I use that, then, it, then I send it out to uh, my critique group, like usually the opening, like if you, if you can't hook people in the first few pages, it's not, you know, you're not going to get anywhere with agents or, or with publishers. So I, I send it out to my critique group. And then after that, I have a dozen beta readers and some, and where my critique group are all like talented, successful writers. The beta readers, some of them are writers and a lot of them are just readers. You know, it's important to get people who read in your genre. Like the, the reader expectations in various genres are so different. So n- not only should you read it, but when it's time for beta readers, get people who understand what you're trying to do. So I, I send it out to a dozen beta readers and I get it back. Then I do, you know, I, I incorporate some of of the critiques. Yeah, that- that's always tough for writers, by the way, like, you know, you, you'll get a critique and, you know, a lot, you know, often I'll have diametrically opposed opinions, you know, like yeah. somebody, somebody loved all the detail in the in, in chapter, somebody didn't, you know, but so you, have, you kind of have to work with what works well for you. But I always consider every single comment, you know, I, I really think about it and maybe sometimes there's a way to do something in between or just minimize what people are having issues with. But and then, then once it goes out, then, you know, I have an agent now, I've, I've actually had two agents. I have an agent now, and then it goes out to uh, publishers.
0: So uh, tell me about your books a little bit while we're talking about your books.
1: Well, my first book, my debut, is called Furious Sailing Into Terror, and it's about a woman who is grieving the loss of a child, so her husband takes her on a, a sailing cruise across the Indian Ocean as a way for the two of them to just sort of get away from everything, and you know, bad things happen. You know, it's, okay. <laughs> it's, it's a pure thriller. It's, it has nothing to do with crime. It's been described as a shining on a yacht. Um, you know, oh! I, it, it, <laughs> that's, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's doing well. It's, you know, that, that, that one selling, I get a lot of really positive feedback. It won the, the fiction book of the year by Pencraft. And it's, I think, I think it has five awards so far. So it's, it's, it's been doing really well. It's had great editorial reviews by Kirkus and other places. And that, that came out last May. So I'm, that's doing really well. Then I have a, a crime book uh, called Unseen, Evil Lurks Among Us. And, and that's about a rookie homicide detective in Washington, D.C. who investigates a string of murders and he uncovers both a vigilante killer and a terrorist conspiracy, You know, making himself a target. So I, I, pitch, I pitch that as Dexter meets Homeland. <laughs> <laughs>
0: your rookie homicide detective isn't a rookie homicide detective yeah isn't anything like a dexter so uh, can you talk about your uh, character a little bit there in unseen who that uh, rookie uh, homicide
1: detective is sure so his name is Malachi Wolf and he was an economist so he's somebody who looks at you know he was he's he was getting his phd in economics his father was an economist and then his father's killed in the Boston Marathon bombing. This is all backstory, right? That comes out later. But so basically, he's 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 looking for a way to find justice and and to, and to protect people, which is what drives a lot of police officers, you know, as you know. And then you know he he uncovers this this vigilante killer that's more where the Dexter comes in. (laughs) And so it deals with, it deals with, you know, gray areas about vigilantism and it it actually deals with a real terrorist conspiracy. Uh, Fortunately for me, my wife is an expert in the Muslim brotherhood and radical Islamic terrorism. So I was able to uh, talk about some real things that are happening in the context of fiction.
0: Okay. Wow. And, uh, and that's out there now in the, in the universe now too?
1: Yeah, that that uh, Black Rose Writing published at the end of uh, August, and it's getting some really good reviews too. It's it's won uh, a couple of awards, and it's it's uh, it's getting some good editorial reviews.
0: Well, that's fantastic. And and what's the, and do you have have you do you have the third one titled yet?
1: Yeah, well, I have two actually that my agent's shopping right now. One is called Blood and Powder, and it's a nonfiction book, and it's about my personal journey. This is uh, you know, from in Afghanistan trying to show the linkage between uh, drugs and terrorism. And so it goes from 9-11 through the – I got the conviction for the first narco-terrorism case – So you know that that that's an exciting personal book for me. And then she's also got a a fiction book called Shaking. I I told you before I I grew up in the little town of Harvard, Massachusetts, which is you know more apple orchards or more apple trees than people. (laughs) And um, and it's it's about a woman with bipolar disorder who's who comes out of college and gets a shot at being a reporter and then stumbles on a body. So it's that this that one's really more of a classic mystery. But I'm excited about it, and it's we we don't have a publisher yet, but we've had some really good feedback.
0: Okay. That sounds both, you know, that's, those are four really unique and different genre and you're, and the way you're, you're approaching them. So that's, you know, I, you're not just uh, trying to uh, beat one drum here. You're going at it a bunch of different ways. That's cool. I have to, I admire that for you.
1: Really, I do. Well, so I would tell I would tell a writer who is doing this that it's not the best way to develop an audience. So they're all thrillers, right? Like they're all in that broad category. But Furious is a psychological thriller. Unseen is a crime slash terrorism thriller. You know, Blood, Blood and Powders, narrative nonfiction. Shaking is a is a small town murder mystery. And I actually I just I told you I just finished the the draft for the forever game. That's my new one. And that's a techno thriller. So they're all they're all thrillers, but they're all different subgenres. And if you're trying to develop an audience, it makes sense to stay in one subgenre. So if people like right. one book, they'll like the next one. But I'm also, you know, I've been wanting to write my whole life. And I'm, I have a lot of good story ideas. And I'm just, I'm trying to write the stuff I want to write. So I'm, I'm hoping that, that I, I, can, I can maintain the same readership through these different uh, subgenres. Uh,
0: that's a nice hope. And I'm not saying anything <laughs> negative about, no, I'm not saying anything negative about that, Jeff. What I'm saying is the first and most important thing you said there was you were writing what you wanted to write. And and if you hope to attract readers that were willing to cross genres, they because they want to follow your writing. Well, that's great. That's fantastic. But you're writing what you want to write, and that has to be it. Has to be the only driver for a a writer. I can maybe there are some writers that think that they can do a formulaic thing on tropes and and being able to you know, crank out uh, you know 16 books in a certain series to uh, attract a readership and make money. And I would say that's a soulless effort. I mean, that's like going to going to work at some job. <laughs> you know, how is that? I, I don't get it. I don't. I don't understand how that could even be fun. How would you want to sit down and say, "Well, I'm just gonna crank out seventy five thousand words of pablum"? You know. And uh, so, you're, what you're what you're doing is certainly. Uh, I have to applaud it because you're writing to write what you want to write when you want to write it and, and how you want to deal with it. And if you want to settle into a series, if you want to settle into one genre later on, hey, that's possible. If not, if you want to keep, you know, challenging yourself in different ways, that's cool too because from from your standpoint, you're writing because of what you want to write. And that's what gets you that's what gets you to sit down at the keyboard and pound that out and revise it, revise it and revise it as as you've said. So, definitely. Uh, how can people get in touch with you, sir?
1: The best way is through my website. It's uh, Jeffrey James uh, You know, I have the Amazon author page. I have a Goodreads page and a BookBub page. But I, you know, the, if they, you can contact me directly through the uh, website and it has links to all my writing.
0: Okay. Well, I, I certainly appreciate you coming on the show. Did I fail to ask you any questions today that you think I should, I should have covered?
1: No, it's a it's a fun interview. I appreciate it. It's it's always fun to talk about books. You know, we the one thing we all share is this love of story. And I I get excited reading things or watching movies or talking to other writers or readers. You know, it's a real passion. And I, I, I know you feel the same way. I can hear it in your voice.
0: Hmm, Thank you. I appreciate that. And one thing I did skip and I should have, and I, and I said it earlier, but I, I skipped over it. Um, who do you like to read?
1: You know, even though I, I write thrillers, I kind of read everything. I read fiction and nonfiction or whatever. I I think Cormac McCarthy is probably one of the the best living writers, like the most beautiful prose, Okay, you know, for, uh, like what I'm trying to think. I I read probably 70 books a year. I, I just, just read, uh, Tess Gerritsen. Uh, what was it? Her Harvest okay uh, she writes uh medical thrillers which are terrific and then uh, a couple weeks ago I, I read uh the martian you know which was that turned yes. into that matt damon movie that's andy weir right. he's terrific yeah yeah that I, I i ordered his new book as well because i i just really i mean he's so funny and just and just really just he, the pacing is fantastic and you know i i do like like sci-fi and techno thrillers as well so obviously i'm like a big michael creighton fan and you know, I grew up on Tom Clancy and military thrillers, which is what my novella is about. That's a, that's a, a military thriller as well. And
0: what's so, the name of that? You know,
1: uh, Forsaken. Forsaken. Yeah.
0: Borrowing from. Uh, you can get it. At, at, on Amazon, at, right?
1: Amazon Vela, or you can get it as an ebook on Amazon. Okay. Well,
0: Jeffrey, um, I certainly appreciate you coming on the show today. I thank you so much. And uh I wish you the best of luck with uh, I hope that you get these uh, get nice homes for the the two that you have out there and hope to see some uh, traction with forsaken and then maybe uh, get the other your backlist to to uh, get uh, readers interested in as well
1: sir so thank you that's always the hope thanks John I appreciate it <laughs>
0: Thank you for listening. I hope I've earned your interest and your time. Next week's guest is Sarah Smith. Sarah studied English at Harvard, where she spent Saturdays in the library reading mysteries. She studied film in London and Paris. Her best-selling series of Edwardian mysteries starring Alexander von Riesden and Perdita Haley have been published in 14 languages. Two of the books have been named New York Times notable books. The Vanished Child, first book in the series is being made into a musical in Canada. Crimes and Survivors, about the Titanic and the people who survived her wreck, was published right in the middle of the pandemic, a good time to think about survival. Sarah's young adult ghost thriller The Other Side of Dark won both the Agatha for Best YA Mystery of the Year and the Massachusetts Book Award for Best YA Book of the Year. Her Chasing Shakespeare's, a novel about Shakespeare authorship, has been called the best novel about the Bard since Nothing Like the Sun and has been turned into a play. Sarah lives in Boston with her family and not enough cats. She's a member of Sisters in Crime Education Committee and the Strong Women Strange Worlds Steering Committee. She's also a member of the Mystery Writers of America, Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America, and the International Thriller Writers. This episode was brought to you by my own FBI agent Marcia O'Shea six book series and my upcoming Gwendolyn Strong small town cozy mystery series. To learn more, go to www.johnhoda.com. That's J O H N H O D A.com. And join my email list. Liberty City Nights, my Marcia O'Shea prequel novella is available to my subscribers there for free.